This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. This is iUniverse Radio. I am Brian Houston. Thanks very much for joining us. Today we are talking about the book Tattoo Zoo, a novel of the Afghan War. And with us on the phone is the author of the book, Tattoo Zoo, Paul Avalon. Paul, how are you? Hello, just fine. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, I was very uh, interested, first of all, in just your background. Uh, immediately, uh, when you see that you're a veteran of more than three years in the Afghan war as a Green Beret and then as a civilian embedded journalist, that right there could take up the entire interview just talking about your background here. No, 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 no. The Green Beret was, I've been a Green Beret for years and years and years and went to Afghanistan as a Green Beret. Uh, and uh, then I had never known anything about Afghanistan, and just like the average Joe in 2001, 2002, 2003. And then I got out, I finished my military career and got out, and I went back to Afghanistan as an embedded journalist, because I'd written articles for my Green Beret time, and that's how I was a journalist. I'd been a writer for years. So were you doing this on a freelance basis? Who were you working for as a journalist when you were covering this? Exactly. I was doing it as a freelance basis, and I was publishing in a... Uh, Army Magazine, which is Association of the United States Army, which is a reputable Army magazine. It's independent of the Army, but it's really read throughout the Army. And also, surprisingly enough, and people kind of chuckle out of this, I've published a lot of articles in Soldier of Fortune. Oh, very good. Okay. Tell me about... Was, I, I don't they know can about... all be found. I have all the articles on PDF on a website. So, I mean, people can look me up and they can, they can look... Some of the uh, Soldier of Fortune articles were rather... Prescient and original from way back in 2003, I wrote that we didn't need to be in Afghanistan. We should get out of that war. It's a waste of time. And no one believed us then, but it's happened that way eventually. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask because that's quite a contrast from uh, writing for a uh, U.S. Army publication uh, to uh, writing a more of a free-thinking kind of a, an article like that. I'm sure there's quite a bit of difference in the articles. Uh, yeah, in fact, well, Army Magazine is independent of the Army, but it's really geared for the Army. And But the, there's a radical difference. And, yeah, you do write differently for Army Magazine than you do for Soldier Fortune. Actually, the editor of Soldier Fortune, the publisher, Robert K. Brown, former Green Beret himself and Vietnam vet, he is really much more open and free. And, and editorially, I mean, his stuff was really broad, that he allowed me some freedom that you know, to really, in, in 2006, really put down what was really happening wrong in the poppy eradication program and to mock that. So Soldier of Fortune was good in the freedom it gave me. Very good. And uh, so what led to writing the novel, uh, Tattoo Zoo, about the Afghan war? Yeah, in fact, we should stress it is a novel. It's a war story. It's fiction. There's no pretense to truth here uh, in comparison to the articles in the magazines I did. I originally, I've been a screenwriter for years and years and years, not that you know anything I've written in Hollywood, let's just leave that out. 
And so I originally wrote Tattoo Zoo as a screenplay, because that's why I don't write novels. I write screenplays, which are entirely different than novels. And uh, and it grew from, as the screenplay, it was more, became more important to say it as a novel, and that's how it grew into, into a novel. Is that because you wanted to be able to put a lot more detail into the thing? Well, actually it wasn't. It was because I actually wanted a screenplay. The, the screenplay got really good reception in Hollywood. This was back almost four years ago, 2010. And, but no one was going to do an Afghan war movie or an Iraq war movie. This is before the Bin Laden movie. And this was just after uh, the Hurt Locker had won awards, but it made no money. So nobody wanted to do, no one to put any money. So it's like the, the story was a great story. Everyone loved the story. The story, the actual novel, not the novel, but the screenplay story of, of Tattoo Zoo as a war story would make a great movie. And it was sitting lingering on my shelf and nowhere to go. And I said, well, you know, there's another avenue. It, you know, maybe if I turn it into a novel. So I really thought, oh, I'll, just, I'll just turn out a 90,000-word novel. It'll be no problem at all. <laughs> Screenplays are usually about twenty to 25,000 words. That's, that's a big difference. But the novel grew on itself to a much bigger, bigger, bigger story. It turned out to be much more serious than I thought. So The, uh, the book cover uh, describes it as a novel in the tradition of the naked and the dead, so that's quite a comparison. Yeah, the naked, that's what it's been compared to, naked and the dead, and uh, James Jones's uh, uh, The Thin Red Line, and then those are from World War II, and then others are really complimenting when people say it reminds them of there's a Vietnam, a big Vietnam War, novel that came out in the 70s called The 13th Valley by John Del Vecchio, which is still in print. And then more recently, just a few years ago, in fact, after I'd written the screenplay, I became aware a, a novel had just been written about the Vietnam War. It had just been published called Matterhorn by Carl Marlantis, a big novel like The Naked and the Dead, The Thin Red Line, and it got really good reception. I mean, who cares about Vietnam so many years later? But it was written by a a Marine Corps officer who'd been in Vietnam as a Marine Corps officer, and uh, he, it took him 30 years to write it, Matterhorn. And so, you know, I thought, well, well, it wound up, the Tattoo Zoo wound up sort of like that's being compared to like Matterhorn. I'm saying, well, thank you, thank you very much. They're serious novels, so. Well, the story is based on, uh, according to the description, 43 Americans choppered into the valley, only seven walked out. And it's yeah, that's... Go ahead. Excuse me. That's the that's the Hollywood tagline. Remember, I said the screenwriting blood runs through me, mm-hmm. I mean, and that that's on the cover. And it's true. I mean, it's as I say, it's a story. It's an artificial story, but you know, and so it's forty three Americans choppered in the valley, seven walked out. So what happens in that valley in this short? Actually, the novel's long, but it only takes place within forty six hours, less than three days. The story takes place. Uh, I kind of like I like to con- condense it all, like a movie would be condensed in that sense. So that's basically the story. I create this artificial platoon, this U.S. Army military, G.I.s, this infantry, this artificial platoon, its nickname is Tattoo Zoo. They're just regular old guys. They're not paratroopers airborne. They're not Green Berets. They're not, you know, Navy SEALs. They're not, they're not even Rangers. They're just regular G.I.s, and I put them in this valley for 46 hours against the Taliban. All right, now how much of this is a creative and poetic license and how much of this comes from uh, personal experiences during your time in Afghanistan? Well, you know, you can't separate the two in the sense that I've spent, you know, over three years in Afghanistan. 
the original as a Green Beret. Then later I did some civilian contracting work there. And then extensively as an embedded journalist, I embedded with the 10th Mountain. Uh, and I embedded with the 101st Airborne. And so I was with just regular GIs for a long time. And so, I mean, the, this story did not happen to any particular unit. And there again, it's fiction. It's a novel. Just like Matterhorn didn't happen in Vietnam. That was an artificial story that he created based on his own experiences, of course. Or the thin red line or the naked and the dead were artificial stories, but, you know, with their experience, it couldn't have been written without their experience. All right, now, again, the description of the book uh, talks about the platoon trapped in a fierce fight with the Taliban. Uh, how much of that have you experienced, actually? Uh, enough, a little bit enough. I don't, we don't talk about it. I mean, not as fierce, of course, as this battle, and there again, because it's a, a novel of 46 hours. But it, 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 the battle with the, as the, the book is also about not only the battle with the Taliban, but their, the particular platoon is being charged with some war crimes, and the uh, general in charge of the Afghan war, it, it's a very complicated political situation with him and his command and how this platoon is going to bring everything. And so he wants to bring them back to Kabul under arrest for, for prosecution. So that's another battle that is looking them in the eye. So they're fighting the Taliban and uh, the country that is supposed to be supporting this platoon, uh, basically hanging them out to dry? Yeah, that's basically it, hanging them out to dry in this valley where they can't be reached. And uh, that's the story. That's the basic simplicity of the story. And in a screenplay, in a movie, it can really be done in two hours quite well in a simplified form. But in the novel, it became much bigger in the sense that I don't, you know, if people aren't used to reading big novels, I don't recommend them read it. Because if you can't read 500 pages, if you're not used to it, you're not going to get, it's not an MTV novel. It's not a quickie, bang, 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 in and out, and you're done. It's a complex story of Afghanistan written very simply from a, a very simple point of view. But it's the war as I know it. How did you come up with the name Tattoo Zoo? I don't know. As I say, I sat down to write a, uh, uh, a movie uh, of taking my experience, just a quick war story movie, and Tattoo Zoo just hit me. Because military guys have tattoos. I mean, you know tattoos are big in our society now, right? I mean, right. really big. And I live in a military town here. I live in Clarksville, Tennessee, which is the home to the 101st Airborne and also 5th Special Forces of the Green Berets and also the 160th, uh, it's Fort Campbell, Kentucky, the 160th Special Operations. Those are the the guys that flew into uh, to get bin Laden, the special operations helicopter unit. They're all here in Clarksville. So they're all, this is a military town. And mili the tattoo shops are all around town. And, of course, in the military, a lot of people have tattoos. So it just happens to be the nickname of this platoon because the guys have a lot of tattoos. And they, they love the nickname, which a reader will learn within the first few pages how that came about. But I, I, as for a title, well... It rhymes, Tattoo Zoo. I mean, it sounds good. It's easy to remember, isn't it? I like it. Uh, you, also, you. you also uh, have a character, and you mentioned the general, who uh, wants to try the, the platoon for war crimes. Uh, and uh, some would uh, say that there may be at least somewhat of a comparison between uh, this general, Pete St. Clair, and uh, General Petraeus. Is there any truth to that? Uh, how, how much did you base the character on the real thing? 
Well, I don't, I have never met uh, General Petraeus. In fact, he's famous here in Clarksville in 101st, and I have friends who know him intimately, are friends with General Petraeus, but I've never met him, I've never worked with him, so I can't, I can't say, I mean, this is a novel, so it's not General Petraeus because I don't know General Petraeus. If people want to conclude that it could be General Petraeus or a symbol of what generals in high positions of power are and what they will do to retain their power, to retain the next level above the fourth star. Uh, but it, it's not... If people want to think it's Petraeus, fine, or General McChrystal, fine, or General King, fine, or whomever they want. Okay, fair enough. Uh, also, there were some who have said that you uh, treat the Afghans... Um, Pretty roughly in this book, in your descriptions, uh, how about that? It was it a fair description of the Afghans? Yeah, I, I, I've had a lot of experience with Afghans. Individually, and I've worked with Afghans as the Green Beret, we had a hundred-man Afghan army, basically, that worked for us. and became, We became intimate with them. We worked on a daily basis. They were our, our troops that went out with us. And I've lived with Afghans, worked with Afghans, been with the Afghan, the ANA, the Afghan National Army, et cetera, et cetera. So I think people who have spent time in Afghanistan and been with the Afghans reading this novel will say he pinpointed the Afghans uh, exactly. I mean, it's a different culture, and we have to, we, we have tried to ignore that it's a different culture, and, and like they can be us, and they're not us. And we expected them to be us, and they're not us as Americans. It's a different culture. And read, if people want to know what the Afghans are like as a basic culture and as soldiers, uh, I think I'm very, very fair. And then I'm, I'm, someone can argue with me, and I'd be glad to listen to them argue and say why I'm not fair. But they'd have to, I think I'm very fair to the Afghans. Although that description may not be very complimentary to those who are, uh, you know, of, a, of the mindset of the Afghans, are you afraid that some jihadists might come looking for you? <laughs> I, I hope not. No, I don't. I don't think they'd waste their time with me. They've got bitter, bigger fish to fry, like maybe General Petraeus. I'm just kidding there. <laughs> uh, but but no, I, I'm trying to be fair. There's there is one character in the novel who was really wasn't even in the screenplay, and he was going to be the minor, minor Cajun Afghan, and, and very minor in the novel, but it grew, his character grew, because I had to be so fair to the Afghans. And I think when people see that character, he's, called, he's the Afghan sergeant, I never even give him a name, he's just the Afghan sergeant. And, uh, yeah, you can balance the good and bad, the cultures are different, and there are reasons for that, and um, as the war progressed, as you've heard, there's the you know the the, the Afghans killing Americans, the soldiers killing killing other you know the Afghan soldiers and the police you know blowing up and shooting Americans, uh, where you can't trust the Afghan you're with with a gun, and that's that is just the Afghan is different in that sense. There are the novel explains it quite well, and I think if people don't like the way I. My take on the Afghan and the Afghan culture, don't read the novel or get mad at me and write an essay that says, no, Paul Avalon's wrong. I mean, go ahead, do it. Argue with me on it. That's fine with me. Very good. Uh, If someone does sit down and invest the time to uh, read this epic novel, uh, when they walk away from it after they finish the last page and close the book, what do you want them to come away from your book uh, thinking, feeling about the book? I want them to be profoundly moved. When they close the book, I want them to sit there for a 
few minutes and just be go like, let their breath out. Oh my God. Oh my God. As it's all really come together at the end of almost 600 very crowded pages of a lot of words. There's a lot of words in here. I want them to be moved and changed and to understand the Afghan war better than they've under, ever understood it before. And if they have been to the Afghan war, they will, they will understand it a little bit more, but also say, yes, that's the way it was. That's the way it is. I want them to be, to be moved, understand, and to care about these few characters. To, to have Lieutenant Colonel Dove and Eberly and Holloway and Wolf and Red Cloud and the Afghan sergeant and Finkel to live with them, to remember them, to be a little bit changed. That's what literature or novels are supposed to do. You know, basically some of them, or they're just supposed to be beach reading one or the other. I don't know. Beach reading is enjoyable. I want them to be, to enjoy the read, but it's not an easy read because it's a long read. But I want them to be moved by the end. If they're not moved, then I've failed in my job. Anything that I have not asked you that you want to add to this interview? I don't know. What should I add? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I would add that I would say, I don't, I don't tell people to, to buy Tattoo Zoo and read Tattoo Zoo just because they're my friend or, you know, I, I mean, just, just out of curiosity. If you're not a reader, it's a big book. I don't start the, the, the book does not, the novel does not start with a wham, bam, shoot 'em up thing where the, the heroes are in jeopardy and we end with the enemy charging the heroes and boom, that's your first three pages and then we get into the story. No, I consider my readers a little bit more intelligent than that and I say, we have a big story here and it's a long story, even though it's only three days and it's work. You're gonna read almost uh, you're going to read almost 250,000 words, about 230,000 words. It's a big read, three or four times longer than a novel. So if you're not used to reading like that, please don't pick it up because you will just waste your time. So if someone seriously wants to understand the Afghan war and feel the Afghan war, and more importantly, it's entitled Tattoo Zoo because it's about American GIs, fighting men, the guys doing the fighting, the dying, the living, the loving, whatever, the experiencing... And it's different than the, there have been a couple of books already published about the Iraq War novels uh, recently, in the last couple of years. And they all seem to be on the negative, nihilistic, that war turns you ugly and no GI comes out unscathed and he may go in as a nice, nice guy with an innocence of the GI, the 18-year-old GI, but, but he comes out, he's going to be hateful, he's going to kill people, and he's going to be ugly, and he's going to have PTSD, and he's going to have nightmares, and he's going to have blown off his leg. It's all these books, including, I can really symbolize it in one book called The Yellow Birds. And oh, it was published to great reviews and great praise, and it's beautifully written because it's written by a guy who was in Iraq as a soldier, and who uh, then went and finished his college degree as a master's of fine arts in poetry. So it's beautiful poetic language, but all the three or four characters, the GIs, either go crazy, they kill people, they become corrupt, they go to jail, they kill themselves. So Tattoo Zoo is our normal soldiers as they normally are, and they're not all going to have PTSD and they're not all going to have nightmares and they're not all going to kill people and come home and beat their wives and get drunk and use drugs. Uh, so, you know what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Did I, I talk too much, Brian? No, not at all. It was a great description. Uh, we appreciate that. 
The name of the book is Tattoo Zoo, a novel of the Afghan War. Paul Avalon, thank you very much for the time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian, for letting me talk. <laughs> oh, we loved it. It was great to vi visit with you, and good luck with the book. Uh, I'm Brian Houston. Thanks for listening to iUniverse Radio. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book, The Shaman's Daughter, written by Nikki Royal Pete. And I welcome her from Virginia in the United States today. Welcome, Nikki. Hi, Jay. It's great to be here. Pleasure to visit with you. Uh, this is a, a non I'm sorry, this is a fictional work. Tell me the background story and why this particular setting was important to you and why you wrote the book. Well, it all came about, I went back to seminary when my uh, children were in high school uh, to study religion and to study to be a minister. At any rate, uh, as part of that experience, I had visited a, a small town in Appalachia, western North Carolina. We were supposed to go to another culture and immerse ourselves in it and get an idea of what people there needed and what they were like. And we went by a church uh, as part of that visit, and the preacher told a story about how a new highway coming through was going to make them have to move their church and um, dig up their whole cemetery and move the bodies to another location. And he said that um, it had been quite upsetting to everybody in the church, you know, because here they had buried their relatives, and all this grief was resurfacing because they were going to have to deal with it again, have second funerals, you know, and and at the same time, there were people protesting. There was a strange, mysterious musician they hadn't been able to catch on the excavation, uh, playing tunes over the excavation to uh, heal the land. Well, this story just captivated me, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. Uh, 1998, I finished seminary in 2000. Um, went to work for uh, a church for several years, and actually did write a couple of chapters of this book. Uh, everyone I'd shared the idea with thought it was you know, very compelling. So, and I also had a lot of experience with that area in Mars Hill, going back there every year for a spiritual gathering of people from all different faiths, and uh, just a beautiful area with mountains and, and valleys and uh, gorgeous scenery um, in just Cherokee 
the Cherokee Reservation, Asheville, the whole surroundings uh, captivated me. That's where the book was set. So, Nikki, that was the backdrop of the story that you began to write. How long ago did you start the process of uh, completing this novel? Well, it was kind of a lengthy process with a big lull in between. Um, I started in 2000, but then um, kind of life and work intervened. Uh, I went to work in the nonprofit sector, which was my my true love uh, as far as work was concerned. I worked for um, different nonprofits that had to do with helping the uninsured until like 2012, usually as a a, a director or administrator. But I'd always dreamed of writing a novel. It was like on the top of my bucket list. While I had written uh, nonfiction before with some success, I really had never written a novel. Uh, The most fiction I'd ever written was a short story. So when I I retired in 2012, I decided, well, there's no time like the present. And I started on it. I, I went back to Asheville in the Mars Hill area, interviewed people, read books, uh, expanded on the original idea, and uh, it took me about two years. And you, um, your main character, his name is Sistu, is that the right pronunciation? Uh, it's actually, the, um, the book has two female characters who are the heroes, uh, Sistu and Loki, and they are Native American women um, from two different centuries whose stories intersect uh, because of... Uh, uh, the 20th century teenager uh, is part of the grave excavation, and they make a discovery that connects her to the uh, to the 19th century teenager Sistu, who was the young woman who was the first woman shaman of her tribe, um, overcoming almost insurmountable difficulties to to get to that position. Because it's a historical in nature, and I guess a fantasy novel to some degree. Who do you think is going to enjoy reading the the the, the story of the shaman's daughter? Well, so far, um, I've had a, a lot of uh, adult feedback. Um, people of all ages have enjoyed it. Most of them have been women. I think that men would enjoy the book too. My husband loved it, but he's a little prejudiced. Um, uh, I think also it's it's a it's a good uh, book for um, helping to empower women. Um, you know, um, Cherokee women in particular have had problems with domestic violence. I've worked in domestic violence myself in my career. And uh, uh, like a study in 2008 said that 39% of, of Native American women were uh, victims of um, domestic violence. So my book is very empowering for women. Um, and it's also a good historical t- tool. I think that uh, teachers have told me that they would find it useful um, to use in the classroom because especially it's very accurate in terms of what's happening in America with the advent of the colonists across the country and the Indians having to move from one place to another um, to be able to stay on land. They get having to give up their land thinking they're going to be able to keep it, but then having to be either being forcefully removed or just leaving to avoid a fight. And Nikki, um, in in your storyline itself, what would you say is the um, the best way to describe the theme of your book? I know it's directed for uh, against um, violence in the home and other things. I mean, there's that element in there. But how would you describe the story in its uh, entirety as an overview? 
Well, as an overview, I would say um, we first come across the story of of Sistu, who is basically um, uh, saved from uh, dying very young from smallpox by a shaman. But uh, her mother dies in the process, and she's uh, pretty much raised by her aunts and this shaman. But... um, one of the things that I had in the back of my mind uh, was progress and how progress can be interpreted in many different ways by different people. Uh, in in um, Sistu's story, she makes personal progress uh, by achieving something, becoming a shaman that no other uh, woman has achieved in her tribe. Um, but the uh, colonists feel that progress moving forward and taking over the new land and, and teaching. Uh, they consider the Indians to be uncivilized and teaching them how to read and write. And so it's, it's a mixed bag of how we think about progress. And the second part of the book, where Sistu is a, is, a, is a Native American teenager who's protesting his highway coming through, that's another example of progress. Uh, I mean, the, the town uh, will have more access to more modern music and clothing and so on from other uh, localities, and uh, it'll be easier to travel from one place to another, but they're going to kind of lose that that insulation of that small-town feel, um, that the generations of people being close and looking out for each other. And do you, you touch upon the Native culture and how they're dispossessed in the United States in, in many ways. Do you also yeah. deal with some of the other issues that were, I guess, uh, placed upon them as far as separation and you mentioned the, the lack of education? Were there other things that you uncovered while you were researching the book? Uh, well, I, only, I uncovered some very interesting things. For example, um, well, I guess most people know that, uh, that uh, whites introduced the Native Americans to alcohol, which became a tremendous problem for Native Americans who particularly seem to be susceptible to alcoholism. And uh, another um, thing that w- that I found very interesting was that uh, one way of securing Native American land uh, was to let them, um, Thomas Jefferson actually uh, thought of a policy where at trading posts you could get unlimited credit and the Indians would uh, go and buy things from the uh, the uh, trading post not realizing what a big tab they're bringing up and then when they can't pay it a lot of times they'd end up you know saying well you can have some of my land or the trader would say well hmm. we'll take some of your land in exchange unbelievably, so, um, unbelievably tough history yeah we can see that history. we can yes. see that still you know coming about and just the just the illness that I mentioned in the book was brought over smallpox um Two-thirds, I think, of the Indian nation in, in Virginia and North Carolina was wiped out. Uh, so, I mean, uh, it, there may have been a different story historically if that hadn't happened because of sheer the sheer numbers of people who, who were gone and couldn't defend uh, their property. One of the scenes that you mention in your book that uh, Sistu was shunned by her father, kidnapped by her cousins, and tied up near a rattlesnake pit... Uh, they mm-hmm. believe she was a bad seed. Are there other scenes in this book also that either are action-oriented or would have this same feel to it that might engage the reader? 
Oh, yes, of course. Um, I'm thinking of, um, well, if there's one wherein the, uh, the, the young woman in the second part of the book, Loki, is, uh, is engaged to, uh, help. She has to do community service because she's arrested for being the person who's playing this loop on the hill. Uh, uh, so she, she has to help the Cherokees move the graves. Uh, mm. And the, uh, the, the church has decided to enlist the Cherokees because they believe that they have the most uh, reverence for the few people who are, who are uh, uh, buried there. And so uh, she's, she's helping to move, dig the graves and move people from one place to another. And, and she discovers something that um, I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's, it would be a spoiler. But um, it links her to this teenager in the past and she has to do research on it, which helps her to gain a greater understanding and the reader a greater understanding of what was going on in, uh, in the previous century. Um, so lots of excitement. Also, lots of excitement in the book. There's lots of excitement in the book, then, not just there's one or two scenes. There's lots of excitement. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a person, of course, not everybody's happy about the Cherokee coming in and doing the grave moving. I mean, there's a, a long-standing uh, prominent citizen in the church who really takes issue with, with it and ends up leaving the church and uh, in getting this young woman, Loki, kicked off this job uh, because he doesn't want... Uh, the Cherokee involved with his relatives that are buried in the church. So it 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 doesn't the the, the novel doesn't pretend that this everything is just hunky dory and that you know the people in the church are going to get along and they're all going to agree about how to deal with this situation. Nikki, you mentioned that you journal. Did you bring together any of your journal entries to help flesh out the characters in your story? Well, in a sense, because I studied, um, a number of years ago, I became interested in shamanism, because I'm interested in not just one religion, but in all religions, and how to, how to bring religions together, seeing what connections they have. And so, um, when I was studying under a shaman, and learning the different techniques that were used, like going into the underworld to, uh, Get your power animal who's going to help you uh, you on your time in Middle Earth where the action takes place and uh, how to go to the upper world and how to be, how to find out how to be guided and use visual imagery and so on. Um, I wrote down a lot of that uh, experience and uh, a lot of the teachings and so on. So I was able to incorporate them into the book and I think they're very interesting. Um, you know, um, it's a different world, an entirely different world, but some of the elements of it in terms of uh, making connections with spirit are similar, you know. I One thing I wanted to do in the book was to present two alternate kind of spiritual realities, but not say, you know, even though I've been educated as a Christian minister, well, this one's better than that one. But there are connections between the two, and there are connections between the people involved. And that's what's important, um, you know, at, at the base. 
Uh, when you were writing this 204-page novel, did you sit down and just begin writing from inspiration and uh, the involvement you had in the past with uh, historical aspects of your book, or did you sit down and and uh, do an outline and and begin developing your characters that way? Well, a little bit of a combination of both. The way I like to work is to kind of let the story lead me. Um, you know, I started with the actual story of the uh, of the church being upended uh, by the highway coming through, and then I did the, wanted to develop a very interesting character who is the preacher at that church, but he's very pro- progressive. You know, one would not imagine that someone in that situation would be as forward-thinking and as kind of ecumenical as he is. Uh, but he's believable at the same time. So tell me the question again. I'm getting lost. Oh, that's okay. I was I was just asking about your, your process of writing the book, and I think you've explained that pretty much. I was curious yeah. also, when you completed the, the process and completed your novel, when you look back, was there an underlying moral to the story? Yeah, I think there's several. I mean, I think, uh, you know, in my, in my uh, dedication to the book, it's to my grandsons, and it's, you know, Always remember that one person can make a difference in the world, to have the courage of your convictions. And that's what these two young women have, despite, you know, uh, it's very hard in the cultures that they live to to speak out and protest what's going on. But I also think another theme is redemption, that they they are able to come back around. Both characters uh, come to a sense of peace or redemption about what's happened to them in their lives. Yes, in writing this character-driven novel, were there some challenges that you faced in order to get it to completion? Well, I guess the biggest challenge was after I thought of the idea of um, of the Cherokee helping them out, because um, uh, one of the elderly Cherokee women went to that church for years. Then I had to, and then I decided to go back a century. Um, because of the graveyard and what's discovered there. The challenge, the big challenge, was how, how am I going to connect these two girls across history? What is it that's going to link them? And, uh, you know, which, in a way that's going to be surprising, but natural and believable. And so I think that was the, the biggest challenge for me. Well, thank you for sharing the background story into this novel that you've written, and I'm sure there's more on the way. This one titled The Shaman's Daughter, our author, Nikki Royal-Pete. Nikki, where do we get copies of your book? Well, currently they are available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. Uh, You can get them from iUniverse online, Goodreads. Um, Do you have a fan page established yet? I have a Facebook page. page established called The Shaman's Daughter. Anybody can go there. And uh, the book is available, um, you know, from me directly. Uh, if, you, if you want to contact me on The Shaman's Daughter uh, or become a friend of that page so you can know what's going on. Um, but you can also order it hardback, paperback, or um, Kindle or Nook from uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble, respectively. It's on other sites as well, but I don't know all of them. And they can order it directly from their local local provider if they just yeah, go they, and ask for it by the shop. They just go to their bookstore, and bookstore puts in the title. It'll come right up. 
yeah, I can order it that way. Fabulous. If they don't have access to a computer. Thank you for joining me today, Nikki, and best of luck on future projects. We look forward to talking with you again. Uh, it was fun. I enjoyed speaking with you, Jay. Have a good day. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Hello and welcome to iUniverse. I'm Clint Yates. So glad you could be with us today. And we're so fortunate today to have Alan Green with us by telephone. He is author of Soldier Boy. We're going to be talking about his book today. Alan, thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, Clint. Now, as we were just talking uh, before before we actually started the interview, this is actually a book that you wrote uh, many years ago that you've kind of revised uh, over the years. Yeah, I, I probably have, most authors tend to write and overwrite their work, and I, I would say I probably worked on this seven times, and I've made changes based upon suggestions of the editors. In fact, I introduced uh, the, the girl's mother into the book, and she wasn't in originally, but uh, she was a kind of <laughs> neurotic, uh, <laughs> she didn't like to go out into the public, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so... Uh, she was at home all the time, and it was a kind of tyrant, as most people at home usually are when they're invalids. And so um, she played a bit of a heavy number in the role. But they said to me, one of the editors in Los Angeles said, how can you uh, mention her and then not introduce her? So I introduced her. <laughs> so let, let's, take, yeah, let's take a step back, Alan. Uh we're already talking about some of the characters. Kind of give us a, a a quick overview. This is a story set in the United States, but then it moves into World War II, right? And with the yeah, title well, Soldier it, Boy. It's set in the anthracite coal mining region of the Appalachian Mountains in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, it's the story of uh, a young couple who uh, grow up in that area. That's the background of the book. And uh, it's a... Um, it's an area that I, I was not born in that area. I was born six miles west of Times Square in New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to Bucknell University, and on the way out there, my, my brother, my twin brother, and I were driven there by my parents. And they stopped at Pottstown, where we saw this anthracite coal mining mm-hmm. uh, wow. museum. Mm-hmm. And that gave me the idea that it would be an excellent area to set a novel. 
because I don't know that any people write about that area. And also at that time, or about that time, I'd read D.H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers. I don't know if you've ever read that book, but it's his most famous novel. It's widely read. And, uh, it's about the coal mining area of Nottingham in England. But I wanted to make a point that the D.H. Uh, uh, Lawrence's novel may be very famous, but he paints a picture of a father who is hated by the wife and mm -hmm. equally hated by the son, who really despised the man. And I couldn't believe that a man could be so despised by his own family. So I have a pretty heavy father in my story, but he's not despised by the family. And there's no hope in his family. Whoever heard of a family without hope? No. Especially in America. Mm -hmm. So that um, I try to introduce uh, the spirit of America into the novel. And I've been in England. My father was born in the north of England. And I know that things can get pretty grim over there. But I don't think you can conceive of an American character who lives without hope. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and Tom Blaine is a character who... Uh, the hero, hero is a character who is a doubting Thomas. Yeah. He always goes about questioning himself. And throughout the novel, he's always asking himself, what, is, what he's doing is right. And I think that's typical of most young people. Even when you grow up and you're older, you're right. always going through with a constant monologue of self-criticism. <laughs> that's true. Do you agree with true. that? Yeah, very, very true. Well, now, yeah. one, one of the things, when I was reading some of the material uh, as we were getting ready to visit... Uh, Alan, you, you, in several occasions, refer to your book as, or uh, that your intention in the book was to write a story about an ordinary American. What, why was that a, a goal of yours for Soldier Boy? Well, uh, it's a goal of mine because I was in the Army myself, and I was a quite an ordinary kid. And I knew nothing about the Army. I didn't even know which way to point the gun. So being in the army and being with those military types, many of whom were professional military men who'd been in for a long time, and he's in the book, that guy who, who when, Tom, when, uh, when Tom Blaine goes to with his, uh, marries his wife over in Atlantic City, they go back and he's, of course, he's well. And uh, this uh, Colonel Bricker <laughs> lets him go off and wipes the slate clean on the AWOL charge and sends him off to be killed in North Africa. I don't know whether that would happen in reality, but I put it in as this kind of thing into the novel, that anybody who comes out of ordinary American life and goes into the Army, uh, you see, we didn't have a draft until 1960. Uh, before that time, uh, we had a draft until 1960, but not afterwards, so that most people didn't go up in that in that environment. I was in the ROTC program at Rutgers, so I was obliged to serve. That was before World War II, and so after six months, <laughs> they uh, had a program where you could get out of service, so they said, you can't get out of service to study English literature, and then they changed their mind, so I got out. But um, I think that uh, the point that I try to make is, is that, that Tom Blaine and uh, his girlfriend are ordinary American people. They're studies of Americana, what America is. He's the boy next door, and mm -hmm. she's the girl next door. And uh, they, uh, their love for each other, this is not love in the sense of a romantic novel, which is, to my mind is pretty phony, but this is a, re a realistic novel based mm -hmm. upon their own experience. 
Well, you say in your in your notes here that not only is it a love story, but you say it's love uh, that also has a sense of humor to it. What, what did you well, mean Well, yes, that? yes. I think that humor must be defined not as uh, Bob Hope, somebody going around and telling funny jokes. And I love Bob Hope, and I love to laugh at his jokes. But I think that, Tom, that true humor grows out of character. It's the expression of character. And it is what people are when you find out what they're what they're what they're really like. Uh, the, 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 that, to my mind, is the true definition of character. It, it emerges from the personality of the individual. And, and Tom's questioning of himself is an aspect of that. He, he, I don't think he ever tells a joke in the, in the novel, mm-hmm. but he, he's, he's humorous in the way he looks at the world. That's kind of how life is, though, don't you think, Alan? I mean, if if you step back and try to enjoy life, it's sometimes there's some humor to be found out there in, in the rarest of places sometimes. Oh, yeah, it's very humorous. In fact, you can find that humor in ordinary life. When I was at Trinity College in Dublin, there was a guy named H.O. White who was a personal friend of W.B. Yeats, the Irish poet. And I went to his lecture one day, and I he, he, he wanted me to come back to his room. They, they lived in college, you know, at Trinity College. They didn't go out and live somewhere else. They lived in college. And so I come, on the way back, we're walking across Back Square, and the, he was carrying uh, Aristotle's Poetics, and a little pasted tap that says, Arist- that says the Poetics on it fell off the thing on the floor. So I picked it up for him and handed it to him, and we went to his office. He didn't want to discuss anything with me until he glued this thing onto the book. <laughs> well, I, I thought that was so damn funny. He didn't intend it to be funny. But I thought it was damn funny that he should, he should take that attitude. <laughs> you know, I, I, was, uh, I was ready to laugh my head off at it. Of course, it's not a thing you would laugh your head off when right. I was an old guy sitting right. there. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know if this is an Americana. I don't know if it's really humorous. But when I was looking, well, when I first opened your packet of material and started getting ready for our visit today, the first thing that stood out to me, Alan, is that this wasn't handwritten or typed on a computer. This was this this had to come from an old style typewriter. And then I see in the notes you don't use a computer. You use a typewriter. No, no, yeah, no, no. I I don't even use a typewriter. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, my first draft. I get a big pen. I'm holding one in my hand now, and I get uh, I get a roll that has you know, 20 picks in it, and I use about half of them in writing the book. And I get the old three-ring student notebook paper, and I uh, write on that on both sides. And then I type it out and revise the typescript, then revise that. And we go on maybe... <laughs> Oh, I don't know how many times. I've had some of them in the cellar for years. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I just, if I sat down at a typewriter or a computer and the thing started jiggling around, I'd be totally <laughs> confused. I wouldn't know what I was saying. Yeah. You know, uh, I think Faulkner once made the point, it all comes from the pen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, that, uh, you know, it, it seems to me that you're in a certain mood when you write, and yeah. I can only write in the morning. I used to write in the evening, but I don't write anymore in the evening. Uh-huh. But you write in the morning when you're alert and awake, you know, and you have to feel that you can do your best. So um, I, I revise typescripts. No one's ever satisfied with what they've written. I think you'll know that. Yeah. You do the best you can, and then <laughs> the rest is in the hands of the gods. But um, that's exactly what I do. You know, this gal out in Pennsylvania, 
Professor June Schluter, she, uh, at Lafayette College, uh, she, uh, uh, she used my dissertation in two, uh, my, uh, my dissertation was on Shackley Marmy and the son Ben Johnson, the dramatist of the se- early 17th century. Mm-hmm. He was born in 1601 and died in mm-hmm. 1639. Right. And she used two of my articles. And, and she, I sent her a copy of the book last fall. <laughs> and she wrote back and says to me, uh, it's a lovely story. This is a letter of hers of November the 13th, 2013. It's a lovely story with characters one doesn't easily forget. Not many writers are capable of capturing an 18-year-old just at the moment of passage from boy, between boyhood and maturity, but you have done this deftly. Wow. Tom's exchanges with Dolo feel especially authentic, so much so that I thought at times I was reading a memoir rather than a work of fiction. I'm not sure you realize this, but your novella could also be a play. You need only acquire a companion for Tom so his introspections can be heard. But all along, as I moved through the dialogue, thinking of how it would play on stage, and I thought it was very flattering because Professor Schluter has, if you look her up on the computer, she's got three pages of academic publications. And so any praise from her doesn't come cheap. Yeah, quite a, quite a compliment. Yeah, I thought it was. In fact, I sent that letter to my two brothers, and both of them were very much pleased. They said it was very flattering that she should write like that. Yeah, and that's uh, that's. I know that was your hope with this book, Ellen, is that it would be, for the lack of a better term, it would be believable that people could pick it up and they could imagine that boy, that couple, even today in in this era, even though it's set back in the back in the 50s. Hey, people still fall in love. Yeah. Yeah, people, it doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter if this happened in 1941 or or 2014. They they still go through the same emotions. And they may be different with the way they communicate with each other. I'm not sure they get that much out of this kind of communication. (laughs) You know, my daughter's always going on like that. Yeah. She meets the most awful people, but never mind. But I've I've been writing for a number of years, and I'd hate to give you a list of all the things that I've written. But mm-hmm. I've, I've got another one with uh, Universe, Surface Paradise, which uh-huh. is set in Australia and also follows, uh, well, I won't say personal experience, but it, I did go down to Australia on an immigrant ship, the Orontes, in uh, May of 1955. And uh, so I got to know the Australian lingo. I don't know whether you know the Australian lingo, no, but it's no, quite really. unique. Yeah. And uh, in fact, the editor is a Canadian. And I asked her, do the Canadians, do the Canucks, I should say, yeah. do they understand Aussie dialects? There's not a bit of it. She said it's completely unique. Wow. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it's in English, but it's very, very different. English slang, but very, very different from. Uh, English slang or, or American slang, but you see, uh, America is such a powerful country that uh, we broadcast our TV all over the world. To they know American slang in England as well as we know it here, and they do in Australia. When I was down under, they used to say to me, "Don't you understand our slang?" I said, "No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, just our we own. We don't understand it at all." Uh, but uh, you know. That's the way it is. You're not going to change it overnight. 
Yeah. I think, in a way, if Americans did listen to the slang in those countries, they would become fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's an open-ended question to ask you whether Americans would appreciate a book. I'm, I have a three-page, single-space explanation of Australian slang in this book, in, really? in this new book, and mm-hmm. I was wondering if people would would cotton on to it. Yeah, they may. Or whether it's just too far out. <laughs> it may be. It may become the new thing. <laughs> You never know. Well, again, the, the name of the book is Soldier Boy. It is available at iUniverse. And, Alan, tell us where else can we find a, a copy of Soldier Boy in, in its current uh, updated edition? Well, there is only one edition of Soldier Boy. Right. Um, it, it's available on Barnes & Noble. And if you look in the computer, you'll see about eight different sites. I, 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 I've got them listed somewhere, but I forget what they're all called. But they uh, I forget the names of them all, but it's widely available. Well, Alan, we appreciate you being with us today on iUniverse. It sounds like it would be just a wonderful read, a piece of Americana, as you said, that's uh, that's filled with all kinds of love stories and all kinds of things that we we even see in our lives today. Thank you very much, Clint. I appreciate the interest. All right, well, thank you for being with us, and thanks for being with iUniverse. Thank you very much, Clint iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.